0: Hit that notification button, like, comment, and share. Enjoy. Hello and happy day. How does slowing down sound to you today? Would you like to reduce the noise for just a bit? Are you ready to make a choice and decide to listen? My name is Igor S.F. Walker. I am here to remind people to slow down to reduce the noise to walk their lives into a natural flow. Welcome back to the Book of the Week series. Every week, as I read another amazing title, I share it with the world. Today we look at On Desire, Why We Want What We Want by William B. Irvine. In this video we are investigating desire, to turn it inside out, to understand how and why desires do arise, how they affect our lives, and what we can do to master them. In pursuing this goal, Irvine examined what Buddhists, Taoists, Hindus, the Amish Shakers, Catholic Saints have said about desire, as well as what ancient Greek, and Roman, and modern European philosophers as well. Stick around. Till the end, I will share with you some tools. I do have and use that will help you tremendously in this game of life. Discover a way to find out what actually motivates you. What innate human need is driving all of your decisions and your behavior. I will share some tools to improve your self-awareness, social awareness, self-management and relationship management. It takes desire to attempt unsuccessfully to extinguish desire. You will discover that it is almost impossible to keep your mind empty. New thoughts will arise, many of which express desire. You might notice that you are hungry and wish to eat, or that you are uncomfortable and wish to fidget. You might experience anger, which reflects disappointment of your past desires or anxiety, which reflects your desires about the future, Irvine's goal, besides being multicultural, is examination of desire in a multidisciplinary approach. After examining the writing of philosophers and religious thinkers, he investigated scientific research into how and why we do form desires we do form. Many of our most profound Life-affecting desires are not rational, in a sense that we do not use rational thought process to form them. Indeed, we do not form them. They form themselves within us. They simply pop into our heads, uninvited and unannounced. While they reside there, they take control of our lives, a single rogue desire can trample the plans we had for our lives and thereby alter our destinies. If we are to understand desire, if we are to understand the human condition, we need to acknowledge the possibility of spontaneous desire. The intellect is constantly being blinded and perverted by the ends and aims of passion, and the evidence it presents to us with such a show of impartiality and objectivity is fraught with interest and propaganda. We are masters of self-delusion. Our desires are fruitful sources of every kind of error and misjudgment. And Because we do have these yearnings in us. Our intellects present to us everything disordered and accommodated to the norms of our desire. Merton is not alone in thinking that reason tends to be the servant rather than the master of desire. Usually in our life, our desires change with the passage of time, and one desire displaces another. Compare your foundest desires when you were ten years old with your foundest desires today. They should be different. What has happened is that slowly, with the passage of time, some of your earlier desires were fulfilled, and then you went on to form new desires, while other desires seemed impossible to fulfill, and you abandoned them in favor of new desires. This is the natural state of a man. A head full of desires. But with the desires in question changing from year to year and even from minute to minute, like the water in the river, crises of desire are of three sorts. In the first, you suddenly lose your ability to desire. In the second, you retain your ability to desire but experience a sudden disgust not with respect to a single desire, that would be a conflict of desires, but with respect to your whole collection of desires. And in the third, you experience a meaning-of-life crisis in which you retain the ability to desire, but can no longer see any point in desiring. Our suffering triggers? an inner realization, a perception which pierces through the facial complacency of our usual encounters with the world, to glimpse the insecurity perpetually gapping underfoot. When this insight dawns, even if only momentarily, it can precipitate a profound personal crisis. It overturns accustomed goals and values. It mocks our routine preoccupation. It leaves old enjoyments stubbornly unsatisfying. According to Schopenhauer, what everyone most aims at in ordinary contact with his fellows is to prove them inferior to himself. He adds politeness as a test agreement that people's miserable defects, whether moral or intellectual, shall on either side be ignored and not made the subject of reproach. According to philosopher Thomas Hobbes, all the heart's joy and pleasure lies in being able to compare oneself favorably with others and then form a high opinion of oneself. And according to the theologian John Calvin, each of us seek to exalt himself above his neighbor, confidently and proudly despising others, or at least looking down upon them As his inferiors, the poor man yields to the rich, the pavian to the noble, the servant to the master, the unlearned to the learned. And yet everyone, inwardly, cherishes some idea of his own superiority. Thus each flattering himself sets up a kind of kingdom in his breast. If we compare the lifestyle of the last person with our own. We will quickly recognize that the impact the presence of the other people has on our lives. We dress, choose a house, buy a wristwatch with other people's in mind. We spend a small fortune to project an image calculated to gain the admiration of these other people or perhaps to make them envious. We suppress ourselves and our own desires in conformance with the image we wish to project. And then to finance our own image projection activities, we might spend our adult life working at a job we actually hate. Living without people can be devastating, but living with them is no picnic either. We can categorize our desires. According to why we want what we want. Sometimes we want something not for its own sake, but so we can fulfill some other desire. These others, desires that are desires so you can fulfill some other desire, are instrumental desires. Our desires cannot all be instrumental. Thus, besides instrumental desires, there must be what we shall refer to as terminal desires. Now, These are things we want for their own sake, not for the sake of something else. My terminal desires can further be divided into two subcategories, those that are hedonic and those that aren't. Generally, the desires are formed, to feel good or avoid feeling bad. They are hedonic, and here I mean feel good and feel bad in a broad sense to include not just physical feelings, such as the pleasurable feeling of end of a meal or the pain of hunger, but mental feelings, such as the experience of joy or humiliation. As philosopher Henry Frankfurt points out, these are things I can do just because I make up my mind to do them. Desires of this sort, he says, are not aroused in us, they are formed or constructed by acts of will that we ourselves perform. He adds that we are capable of forming these desires, quite apart from any emotional or affective state. Our hedonic terminal desires are motivated by our feelings. Our non-hedonic terminal desires, on the other hand, are motivated by our willpower. Because a person's desire can conflict, there is a reason to think that we have multiple sources of desire within us, sources that can disagree about the desirability of something. What are these multiple sources of desire? One source of desire is our emotions. Hugh called them passions, the source of our hedonic terminal desires. our desires to feel good and avoid feeling bad. Fortunately for us, though, we do have within us a second source of desire: our intellect. Hugh called it reason. the intellect is skilled in the formation of instrumental desires. Unless you are an exceptional exceptional individual, your intellect all too often ends up losing these battles. Consider first cases in which my intellect wants something but my emotions object. My intellect, for example, might want to cross the country by an airliner because it's the safest and most convenient way to do it. But if I do have a fear of flying, my emotions will object, and if they object strongly enough, I will find it impossible even to set foot aboard an airliner. The intellect's best strategy for dealing with the emotions is to use emotions to fight emotions. The intellect can also use emotions not to fight emotions, but to arouse them. The relationship between the intellect and the emotions is therefore asymmetrical. Although emotions do have veto power over the intellect, in most cases the intellect has only the power of persuasion in its dealings with the emotions, and it can persuade them only if it can evoke a stronger emotion than the one it wants to suppress. Conversely, the intellect can form a desire, but if the emotions don't commit, the resulting desire will be feeble. and if the emotions object, the resulting desire will be stillborn. More general, although the objects of terminal desires, formed by the emotions are inherently desirable. The objects of instrumental desires formed by the intellect aren't. What is it then that motivates us to fulfill these instrumental desires? The intellect, as we have seen, cannot command the emotions, but it can channel currently existing emotional energy. If, for example, the emotions want X. The intellect might talk them into wanting to do Y by pointing out that doing it will get them X. As soon as the emotions are convinced that doing Y will get them X, the anxiety they felt with respect to X will transfer to Y. The intellect can then point out to the emotions that by doing Z they can get Y. Again, the anxiety will transfer to Z. We figure out our own desires the way we figure out the desires of other people by observing our behavior and then drawing inferences from it. And in the same way as we can be utterly mistaken about the motivation of other people, we can be mistaken about our own motivations. The inference we draw about our behavior can have little bearing on reality unless we are an exceptional individual. We are daily presented with evidence of a divided will. We experience what philosophers call weakness of the will. Our emotions seduce our intellect, We find ourselves wanting to do things such as get drunk, have sex, or express anger that at a higher, more rational level we do not really want to do. On New Year's Eve we might resolve to give up alcohol. A resolution that is broken before the first week of January is over. That our resolutions are so quickly broken suggests that we are not in control. And that elemental forces within us give rise to desires that, at a conscious level, we desire not to have, but are nevertheless powerless to resist them. Indeed, the mere fact that we do make resolutions shows that we are not in control of our own desires. Philosopher David Hume was outspoken in his rejection of the rationality of desire. In the eighteenth century, he wrote, we speak not strictly and philosophically when we talk of the combat of passion and of reason. Reason is, and ought only, to be the slave of the passions, and it can never pretend to any other office than to serve and obey them. According to Hume. Reason is capable of telling us that if we do X, Y will result. However, it is incapable of telling us whether Y is worth obtaining, and therefore whether we ought to do X. It is only when reason is occupied with a value system, with a feeling that something is worth having, the reason then can motivate behavior. One problem with purely reflexive behavior. As we have seen, is that it doesn't allow flexibility in our response to environmental stimuli. Incentivized behavior, by way of contrast, allows us to respond flexibly to our environment. We get to choose what our response to a stimulus will be. Thus, despite having a B.I.S. biological incentive system, we have considerable discretion in determining what to eat. We can pick among all things that, because of how B-I-S is wired, taste good. We can also choose to eat something that, again, because of how our B-I-S is wired, tastes bad. We might do this to please a host, to win a bet or if we are in desperate circumstances and there's nothing else to eat to stay alive. BIS, Biological Incentive System, besides allowing us to respond flexibly to stimuli, is in itself flexible in the sense that its schedule of incentives, the rewards promised, and punishments threatened by, it can change. By determining what feels good and what feels bad to us, RBIS has considerable influence over what desires we form. We tend to want things that feel good and want to avoid things that feel bad. These desires are reflected in our behavior. The path of least resistance is to behave in a manner that earns the rewards offered by RBIS and avoids the punishments threatened by it. The environmental component of human behavior—it isn't just that biological incentive systems make men and women behave the way they do—their upbringing also has a major impact. Whether our BIS rewards or punishes us, after all, it is to a considerable extent determined by how we interact with our environment. It is as if we made a bargain with an evolutionary creator. He was willing to grant us by means of a process of natural selection the ability to desire, but only if we agreed to let him implant within us an incentive system that would guide our desires in a way that would let him accomplish his goal of having us survive and reproduce. In fact, though we didn't enter into any bargain. Instead, this packaged deal was forced on us, and if the evolutionary creator had asked if we agreed to the bargain, what could we have said? We certainly couldn't have said that we preferred some other deal. Since lacking the ability to desire, we couldn't prefer anything. To practice asceticism, we need to master our desires completely. That is the only way we can consistently ignore the rewards our B.I.S. has to offer. To practice hedonism, we don't need to master our desires at all. We need only to listen to our B.I.S. and to do its bidding. To follow the middle path, by way of contrast, we need to attain considerable but not complete mastery over our desires. In following the middle path, our job will be harder than that of a hedonist, but easier than that of an ascetic. If we are to gain a degree of mastery of our desire, it is important for us to understand the workings of desire. Right mindfulness and right concentration right mindfulness involves a sort of attentiveness or awareness of what is going on within us and around us we take note of the world as it comes without continuously trying to interpret it right mindfulness therefore involves not doing certain things not thinking not judging, associating, planning, imagining, or wishing. The idea is that these are activities that either involve or give rise to desire. Right concentration involves focused, balanced thinking, which can be developed through the practice of meditation. Suppose that you are punctured with a needle. You will obviously experience pain. If the needle is wielded by a doctor who is giving you a flu shot at your request, you will accept and tolerate the pain. If, on the other hand, the needle is wielded by an unknown assailant, the actual pain of the needle will be multiplied many times by your sense of outrage and being thus attacked. The physical pain might be identical to that inflicted by the doctor, but the psychic pain will be extreme. Most of our undesirable desires arise because we care what other people think of us. If we can only stop caring, if we can embrace eccentricity instead of taking shelter in conformity, we can dramatically increase our chance of finding happiness. In choosing a lifestyle, most people unhesitatingly conform to the standards of the society in which they live. Conformity represents the path of least resistance. If you conform, if you live the way those around you have chosen to live, they will approve of your lifestyle. People tend to praise those who resemble them in as much as it is a socially acceptable way to praise themselves. They will reward you with their admiration and respect and with some envy thrown in for good measure for most people. Life requires an ongoing series of compromises between what they want for themselves and what other people want and expect of them. Most people thus come to relinquish much of their own sovereignty over themselves. They relinquish it to the relatives, to the neighbors, and even to complete strangers. And they do so because they value highly the admiration of other people and fear their content and ridicule. Another thing to realize is that the different individuals and groups Offer different and in many cases incompatible advice on how to master desire. Some advise us to join a religious community, while others advise us to continue living in the world but eschew the admiration of the people around us. Some advise us to pray, meditate, solve cones, or reflect on the possibility of an eternity spent in heaven, or a first-rate reincarnation to keep our desires in check. The Stoics, however, reject this advice, and suggest instead that we use reason to overcome our propensity to form unwholesome desires. The skeptics, in turn, reject this advice and argue that reasoning about our desires will only serve to disrupt our tranquility. What are we to make of these divergent advice? We cannot possibly follow it all. I think each of the desire management strategies described in this book is effective. The evidence for this is that those who have adopted any of these strategies have in many cases made considerable progress towards mastering their desires. Now, Which strategy a person should adopt depends, I suppose, on that person's personality and circumstances. In devising a life plan, what should be Our grand goal in living, according to the people examined in this book, our goal should not be the attainment of worldly success, the attainment of fame and fortune. It should instead be the attainment of satisfaction. Which matters is not a person's absolute level of fame and fortune, but whether his level of fame and fortune are sufficient for him, whether he feels satisfied with it. The lower his expectations are, with respect to fame and fortune, the easier it will be for him to gain satisfaction. And there you have it, on desire, why we want what we want. Please do help out. It is easy. Simply like this video so more people can enjoy it. Share it too and spread the word. Do leave a comment and share your thoughts. Subscribe to my channel and stay up to date. And the link to this book is in the description below so you buy it and you read and you never stop learning, especially learning about yourself and nature. So, gift yourself. By taking the free human needs test on my website and find out what actually motivates you, what innate human need is driving all of your decisions and your behavior. And if you feel you are ready to improve your self awareness, social awareness, self management, and relationship management even further, then do check out my Master of Life Awareness program. The links are in the description below. Thank you. Love and respect.